Knowing what body this character has really drops me. Actions, the thesaurus, that has become like a Bible. Creative visualization that really set me free. I love actioning. Very specific action verb. Understanding their backstory is vital in order to be able to. This create. is the actor's mind. What are we called? Welcome to the actor's, actor's mind. Dr- well, I like that. Do you want to say it this time? Yeah. Okay, I do. do it. Do I it. I didn't do realize it. I did until you asked. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Welcome to our third episode of The Actor's Mind. For this one, our focus is actor and character physicality from the theater perspective and embodied cognition from the psychological science perspective. My name is Anne Penner. I teach in the theater department at the University of Denver. And my name is Kateri McRae. I teach and do research and a few other things in the Department of Psychology, also at the University of Denver. So actors, whether you're a kid, a grown-up, an amateur, professional, sometimes we measure uh, our role um, by how many lines we have. I have to admit, when I got cast recently, I looked and I saw how much talking I was doing, how many lines I had. Everyone does it, or a lot of people do it. But what we want to focus on today is the other aspect of performing, what your body can do to help tell the story as an actor and then in character. Yeah? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. I Um, loved it. And I want to just give two examples of two success story examples. Years ago, 15, 20 years ago, I saw Derek Jacobi play Vanya in uh, Chekhov's Uncle Vanya on Broadway. And it was a scene in the second half of the play and he wasn't really talking, but he was on stage. Yelena was talking. I think her doctor husband was talking. And I was just staring at Derek Jacobi because he was doing so much with his body. He was in the scene. He wasn't talking. He was sitting in a chair. He was very agitated. The way he sat, the shape of his body, the gestures he was doing. I think his eyes were focused down on his hands. His hands were very fidgety. And he was telling such a clear story that I... My focus was on him. I still have a vivid image of it 15, 20 years later. Mm. One more successful example is uh, in grad school, I went to a theater festival in Munich. And there were a bunch of uh, grad school performances from all over the world. And the Moscow Art Theater actors did this play called Roberto Zucco. And I had no idea what they were talking about because it was in Russian. But I understood the story so clearly Mm. because of how it was staged the body's relationship to each other. I'm sure obviously this sort of the the information you get from speaking other than what does this word mean was also useful. But those are two examples of people using their bodies, their physicality to tell a super, super clear story. We're going to start generally just by listing a bunch of actor movement trainings. There are a ton out there uh, that are fantastic. And then we're going to get specific and kind of organize uh, the thinking around it. So I just want to list a bunch. Uh, Viewpoints is one of my favorites. There's the Anne Bogart City Company Viewpoints and the very original Mary Overly Viewpoints. There's the Suzuki actor training method named after Tadashi Suzuki. There's Alexander Technique. There's Grotowski. Uh, There's Stephen Wang's Acrobat of the Heart, which is based in Grotowski. There's Rasa Boxes. There's Meyerhold's Biomechanics, Feldenkrais, Laban, Stanislavski, which I'll come back to. Uh, clowning, Commedia, which we won't touch on too much today, Michael Chekhov, aerial trapeze, body-mind centering, choreography, stage combat, the list goes on and on. 
Uh, before I let Kateri talk, I just want to mention Stanislavski. So a hundred years ago, this man who is seen as the originator of contemporary Western actor training said, talked about the psychophysical continuum. And what he means there is, is the mind and the body are attached to each other. They are not disintegrated. They are not separate. They are integrated. And that anything psychological that a character or a human being is experiencing, you can see physically in their body and vice versa, that when you do something physical, it affects you psychologically. Yeah. And this notion of the mind and the body being connected to one another is really central to most of contemporary psychology. Um, although it's interesting because even though most um, psychologists sort of believe this and actually most people like aren't don't deny this, if you gave them that statement as to whether they agreed with it, people still sometimes are surprised by evidence that this is true. Like the, we still have these very underground like lay theories that there's what we think and there's what our bodies do and that those are kind of separable. But contemporary psychology is very much aware of the fact that people are not just brains floating around in glass jars that do things, and, and but that all those brains are connected to our bodies. And when I teach about the brain, I often start with what I call the simplest cartoon version of the brain ever, which is j literally just a slide that has three, you know, buckets in it, three buckets in it, and then there are arrows. And it says, okay, there's inputs from the world. And then there's your brain. And then there are outputs to the world. Huh. And that's what our brain does, right? It yeah. makes sense of inputs and then it makes decisions about what outputs to enact. And the creepy thing, if you think about the output, which is the physicality, is that unless you are outfitted with some really fancy equipment, which very few people are, everything we do in the world we do by moving a muscle. Every influence we have on the world, we do by moving a muscle. These days, a lot of times those muscles are tapping on keys mm -hmm. or speaking, mm -hmm. uh, you, you know, using muscles to vibrate our vocal cords. Um, but that's the only way that, that we're able to communicate in the world it, it is by moving a muscle. And so the fact that the, the, those muscle movements are connected to what we are thinking is just a, a sort of base truth. And I might be a little bit biased, A, because I'm a neuroscientist, and so I'm acutely aware that we have our central nervous system, which controls our entire body, but also because I'm an emotion scientist, I'm an affective scientist, and psychologists who study emotion have always included the body as an essential piece of, uh, of what it means to have an emotion because the outputs of our emotion system are large scale motor movements. There are mm. things like running away or hitting somebody or crumpling into a ball on the floor, you know, or, uh, you know, all of these, these really, really big motor movements. And I think that that what you just mentioned about the sort of, uh, psychological being physical and the physical being psychological emotion scientists for a long time have, uh, postulated that some version of that is true. And there've been a lot of arguments about how much those are equally true and how, and in what order those happen. So there've been oh, emotion yeah. theorists over time who have actually said our emotions start with a physicality and then become psychological and other, other emotion theorists who say that our emotions start with the psychological and then become physical. And we can, I'll talk a lot more about the evidence sort of for, for both of those those sides of the coin. I love that. I, and I want to hear more about that. For an actor, in a way, it doesn't matter. In a way, I guess what I'm saying is, is actors don't have to choose what the actual order is. 
Right. And it might not matter. You know, a lot of times there are these arguments about what comes first in these rapidly unfolding cycles psychologically. And as long as it's cycling, it actually doesn't always matter what comes tippity toppy first because any point in the cycle is a point of access that you can change and influence what's going on. So even though psychologists love to wring their hands over like what exactly is the originator of this signal, as long as it's like cycling or spiraling around, I love spiral better than cycle because it changes where it is every point in the cycle. Right. Um, as long as you're spiraling around every point in the spiral is a point where you can push and change what's going on. Great. All right. Let's get into our list of three. Does that sound good? Awesome. So we decided to organize uh, sort of the unpacking of of actor and character physicality in three parts. The first part has to do with the actor physicality and not the character. So the first part is this idea of going to neutral. (laughs) And this ties into presence, stage presence, but not fully. There's a lot of different ways to talk about neutral. I'm going to give a few examples. Um, You can picture a neutrally shaped body where feet are maybe hip distance apart. Weight is evenly distributed on both feet. Um, So you're not really popping out a hip. So it's not like your left side or your right side has more weight. Hands are at your sides. Posture is relatively vertical. There's no kind of crook in your neck to tilt your head maybe focus, eye focus is straight out. Um, It takes some work getting there because we all have our own as human beings, as actors, we all have our own physical habits. So I personally could say, hey, I think I have a little too much tension in my upper body, or I tend to stand my feet a little bit wider than hip distance just to feel bigger, but it doesn't, it's not really a good idea. Um, Or those are my two examples. And we all tend to have sort of eccentric um, ways of releasing um, energy or tension. So we might leak energy by shifting back and forth, or we maybe have a facial tick or something. We do things with our hands. So part of the actor training is removing all of that, making an actor aware of that. So they become neutral. They are genderless. (laughs) They are ageless. You can't read health on them. It's like you can't read information except for a human body on which you will build character. Which would be the goal. I think there's, pro- there's probably <laughs> some evidence that uh, people do read some of those stable characteristics, even from neutral bodies, just based on things like shape and proportion. But it's interesting that you say that nobody is... You hinted that nobody is sort of inherently neutral, and I would argue that even if someone were, even if someone's like, if their own life had led them to be this like perfectly spine aligned, (laughs) you know, like that even the practice of going to neutral would be useful for building that awareness because that's also part of it is knowing when you're there and sensing deviation from that. Yeah, and I'm right now I'm making assumption I'm talking about uh, able-bodied people. I was I was thinking there's a whole different way of of tackling this if you're someone with a physical disability, right? What does neutral mean to each individual person Totally, is different. Um, so I just want to speak to a couple of, of techniques that would help with this. I know very little about Alexander, but Alexander technique is a lot about aligning the skeleton and the muscles. I want to speak briefly about Suzuki, Tadashi Suzuki's um, training which focuses on the center of gravity or the pelvis or the core and always knowing where that exists in space, which then means it creates a more integrated body. So if you're always aware of where the center of your body, your torso, and especially your lower torso is in space, all of your movement, your shape and gesture comes out of that and it creates a unified picture. Mm. 
which becomes more watchable, right? All of this is all about how to get an actor to be watchable or legible by an audience. I love the word legible in the context of, it's great. of acting. I, yeah. I stole it from Viewpoints. I stole nice. it from Anne Bogart. Um, I just want to point out that both Anne and I are sitting way <laughs> taller than we ever have before while recording because I'm we're both su- hyper aware. <laughs> I'm super aligned right now. Mm. I think that's all I need to say uh, in particular about step one. Is there anything you want to add before we... No, I mean, only the, this, the idea that of, of sort of going to this blank slate and then also being aware. Um, and the awareness piece, and we might talk about this a little bit more again when we talk about presence and mindfulness and these sorts of things. Um, but I also just want to point out that the awareness piece is probably has to do with musculature, right? Like what is the angle of my sort of arm and where is my pelvis and all of that. Um, but it probably also has to do with some internal um, physiological responses as well, right? So attention mm. to your heartbeat and your breath and your, um, you know, sweating and mm-hmm. your uh, anxiety, your gut, mm-hmm. right? All mm-hmm. of those different things are also part of this awareness. Mm-hmm. And while it might be a little bit more challenging to bring that to neutral, right? Imagine having like a bubbly gut in an acting class and like right. not being able to control it. Right. But that's also why experienced performers make choices to avoid any of those internal things right. going on. Like you never meet a professional actor who's like, I'm going to have, you know, French fries and a milkshake like right before <laughs> I go on stage. Because coffee though. There's a lot of coffee drinking. There can be coffee. More commonly a quick half a shot of bourbon to get, cause people, if you can't calm it down, that might help you. You can't go too far with the yeah. bourbon, but honestly, that's, that's just a cheap way of getting to neutral. I know a lot of performers who take a beta blocker right before the audition. Oh, wow. Yeah. Cause they, to, to, to quell the audition nerves and to just get that nervous energy out. Yeah. My technique for handling nerves as an audition is I only choose monologues and songs from nervous characters. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so all of my audition songs are very frantic <laughs> and kind of funny. It is. It's hard. Even those of you know those of us who practice and think about this a lot, the audition situation is very difficult to um, deactivate some of the mm-hmm. extra energy inside of you. I have to. I have to respectfully disagree with the bourbon because <laughs> I have to recommending say, it, <laughs> but a lot of people do. I can do it. see why it makes sense yes, to people. Yes, yeah, it frightens me to drink any alcohol before I perform, even even like an inch, because it just sets me off in a like I'm out of control. Mm. Um, one picture that I think is quite beautiful. Um, is which is not mine, I stole it from somebody else, is imagining that your body is uh, both a container and then the content inside the container. And a water bottle is really useful image. So you have the plastic or the glass or the metal container, and then you have the water inside. A performance is going to upset or agitate or activate or energize the internal energy, which is good because you want to be energized even in neutral. And then the question is, how much of that shows on the container? Mm. So for the point of Suzuki is it art, his exercises artificially extra activate the energy inside of you, but it is your goal to kind of hold it inside of you so it becomes almost like a pressure cooker. And I think it's very extreme training, but I think that's translatable on stage in the sense that you are always, even in neutral, even in stillness, you have a motor going inside of you, sure. even if what your external body is doing is, is, um, quote unquote in control, I think. 
Sure. All right. Step two. Sure. Step two. There are sometimes stable characteristics of character. This is a little bit more on character than physicality, but physicality is a huge part of character. Is that there are oftentimes things that are more postural, things that um, that you might not rigidly maintain for an entire performance, uh, but things that are through lines throughout an entire performance that um, that, that that sort of convey that characters for physicality, so that there's a relationship in psychology terms um, between personality and character. Ooh, talk more about that. Yeah, and so that there again, uh, personality is, is what most psychologists refer to as relatively stable characteristics, things that don't change a ton um, over people's lifetimes, although they do change some. Um, and uh, that there's a relationship between uh, how people are perceived, especially, and some of these um, aspects of, of physicality. So one of these things might be like how much space somebody tends to take up in the room. And some of that is going to be inherently stable because you mm. cannot take up less space than your body. Right. right? right. So some characters have a, a, a large body and then you can't, you know, an actor. And then there's a there's an, a, an immediate um, relationship between actor and character. Um, but like how much characters tend to to display like spread out, you yeah. know, uh, the man spread is, right. is probably a, the, the best known example of this. Um, you know, but that, that conveys something about their character and how much space they believe they are worthy of yeah. and that they have a right to take up. So you get into status, you get into gender. Exactly. And how much they feel the need to leave space available for other people mm. on the flip side. Um, can I say yes and to that? Please. So you're, uh, another, and yeah, bodies have actors, characters, I should say, have relationship to space. So I remember a friend of mine, uh, Sally Wood, hey Sally, <laughs> that she was, I think she was in Philadelphia Story. She was in a, she was in a st- play where the woman had a ton of uh, self-agency and possession, self-possession, and was just extremely confident. And she was, I think the director was helping her come to terms with how that helps her have relationship to the space. Mm -hmm. Um, And that, for some reason, I'm thinking maybe it means that she doesn't have to attach herself to furniture. If you picture a weak person as someone with lower status, they might always be, you know, holding on to furniture as a means of holding themselves up. But a confident character has uh, is less reliant maybe mm. on the furniture in the room that's one of many examples that's a, that's a really interesting way of thinking about that in terms of a relationship to to furniture and it's not to say mm. that these things don't change right like it might be in fact a really good character arc over the course of a play there could be a physicality shift that indicates you know like imagine that character losing confidence over the course of the play um that that would that would be a good way to sort of tell that part of the story but and then the other thing that I wanted to make sure that to clarify is that just because I'm talking about stable psychological characteristics doesn't necessarily mean I'm talking about static physical right. things. So there could be, um, you know, repeated gestures or um, f- you know a particular way of fidgeting or you know a part of the body that tends to lead a mo- lead movement whenever it happens. And all of those things again might convey things about character, even though it's not just like the 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 quick snapshot of like how right, you, you know, stand right. or something. We, we had a conversation about what the best adjectives are to describe this through action of physicality. I love stable. Um, we talked about baseline. You, I think you used the word constraint. Was it constrained? Constraints? Or contain? It was a word that I originally, to me, had a negative connotation, but I now see as a positive in the sense that mm. physicality is supposed to create ingredients and create, create rules 
yeah. right in the in the world of the character and we also have sort of physical rules in the world of the play and so in a way it does constrain you and contain you and that's good like if you if you choose these 10 or 20 ways that your character moves and i'm going to bring up viewpoints in just a sec then then that helps you that grounds you inside yeah. the character and gives you confidence yeah, I think I probably did ca- say constraints, which is something that um, can have a negative connotation. But I feel like in um, often it, constraints are useful when you, yes. especially when you're making choices, they yes. help you make more meaningful choices. I want to speak to two techniques. I'm going to start with viewpoints. Anyone who knows me knows that I adore uh, Anne Bogart's uh, or the City Company's viewpoints, and uh, yeah. That's what I feel. And I was so excited when Katiri got excited about them. There are um, there are nine, in terms of the Ambogar viewpoints, Mary Overly originally founded six uh, f- viewpoints for dancers and choreographers. Anne Bogart and her company, City Company, uh, which is actually tied to Suzuki, have nine physical viewpoints. This is really simple vocabulary that describes movement through time and through space. Um, and it has a lot of goals, but one goal is it can create um, character It can help you create character physicality. So if you think about, say, the viewpoints of space, you have shape, right? The silhouette of your body. You have gesture, movements with part or all of your body. You have floor pattern, how your, how your character takes a, what their path is from step A to B, right? Um, you have architecture, their relationship to the architecture. Um, and you have spatial relationship, how close or far away they are from people. All of this helps an audience understand what the story is. And then the viewpoints of time are tempo, how fast does your character move, duration, how long does it take them to do something, uh, kinesthetic response, which we might get into in step three, uh, and, and repetition. Um, so those are the viewpoints. I find them incredibly useful. And the one other thing I want to mention is Michael Chekhov, uh, nephew of Anton Chekhov, who was... Um, a very influential teacher in the 20th century. And he has something called psychological gesture. I am not an expert on this, but it's really interesting. I bring it into my acting classes all the time and teach it in my own bastardized way. It's the idea of taking the essential, it's inside out acting, not outside in. Well, it then probably leads to outside in. It's taking the essence of your character, the essence of Roy Cohn, the essence of Lenny and Crimes of the Heart, the essence of Blanche and Streetcar, and physicalizing this, so letting it come out in a repeatable gesture, letting it affect the shape, letting it affect the gesture, letting it affect your relation, your vertical or horizontal relationship to the space and repeating it. And then the act of physicalizing that will then give you information about the character. Right. So the inside out leads to the outside in. And it probably becomes a pretty great shortcut, you know, especially, you know, when you are working on a character or even if you're, you know, if you're currently an actor and you spend like 20 minutes at the beginning of every single class you go to, <laughs> like getting to neutral and all of that, like it's actually a ton easier to drop into that. But if you're like rushing into your half hour call from your car after a busy day, you know, and you're like cell phones going off, like you probably don't have the 20 minutes to be like, I'm going to breathe and notice the angle of my knee as it right. relates to my ankle. <laughs> <laughs> and so it, it's a really quick um, shortcut in, into character, yeah. probably, I'm, I'm guessing. And the thing that I find, it, there are two things that are really interesting. One is it just about the overall notion of uh, physicalizing character is that we pick up on this really quickly. Mm. And I don't know 
this is probably some sort of improv game somewhere, or if it's not, um, let's make it up. Or maybe I've seen it somewhere and I've forgotten that I've seen it. But you could imagine a game where you just have two um, actors make a tableau, you know, and it's literally just a like clap on, like curtain Mm -hmm. open. Mm -hmm. And you see like that, a lot of story unfolding just from a physicalization of two characters and how they're interacting with another and then clap, you know, curtains close. And it's, that's just the whole scene. Yep. Um, and the reason explain to our listeners what a tableau is. Oh, I sure can. (laughs) Oh my gosh. You'll have to correct me though. Just a frozen picture. Yeah. It's just a frozen picture of, of people not moving. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Or the, or the French, what's the French phrase? Tableau vivant. Like a living, a living picture. Um, yeah. And that when I do that all the time with, yeah. when I'm teaching viewpoints, it's like you're, you're going to go on stage as a group of two or a group of three people. You're going to think about architecture and spatial relationship and shape. Yeah. Go. Yeah. And when you add in just even a little bit of dynamism, if you add in just a little bit of tempo and some of the gesture, there are these really fascinating studies from social psychology that indicate that you can show people really quick film clips, like on the order of seconds. You can show people 30 seconds of someone and you can take out the sound. So some of the more famous studies on this were uh, showing people uh, film clips of people um, teaching professors, university professors teaching, um, take out the sound. So you have no idea what they're talking about. You're not trying to learn anything in the class, but you just say, you know, you ask them questions like how knowledgeable is this person? Like how friendly is this person? How effective of a professor is this person? And this is really depressing for those of us who teach college classes, but it turns out that people's ratings just watching these 30 ish second clips with the sound removed correlate quite strongly with end of the quarter ratings of this professor. So all of the things that you think are going into your ratings of your professor in terms of like the grades they're giving you and whether they fumbled, whether they knew the definition of that term and like how quickly they responded on email, like those things matter some, but a lot of it is just this really quick, these, the, the, this literature refers to these as thin slices, right? They're yeah, like these really yeah. quick impressions and they're entirely based on nonverbals because you're not even getting um, the, the words that they're saying. And the, the people have looked at thin slices in other ways. Um, there's some evidence that um, people are a little bit hauntingly um, um, accurate at identifying uh, male sexual orientation uh-huh. uh, from these thin slices. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, what was the other one I was just reading about? Oh, that um, if you show people a, wor- a wordless um, clip of the first five minutes of a negotiation between two parties, they can predict the outcome. Who's really? going to get more out of the ne- negotiation? So there are all of these things that we pick up on from nonverbals, basically meant, from just physicality. And I love the phrase thin slices because it makes me think of bologna for some reason. But, you know, the, the sort of different... <laughs> it's not bologna. It's not it's bologna. The real it's thing, it's science. But it makes me think <laughs> of a sandwich, right? And that you are... Mm. I don't think of sandwiches that often when I'm thinking about acting training, but the idea of layering in, right, a bunch of different tools and trying... Uh, you know, maybe this idea, maybe this sort of science that you're talking about right now is helpful with a, when I'm working on a particular character, maybe for some reason isn't for another. But the idea that if you have the more tools you have to cr- to develop physicality, you don't you, you can throw a couple away for right. a particular character and use these other eight or use oh, these absolutely. other ten. Which is also my philosophy about acting training in general. I really like the sort of tool belt, yes. belt analogy of yeah. like we're going to teach you a yeah. little bit of everything. Some of them might resonate with some people yeah. more than others, and you just 
when you need a hammer, you pick up a hammer and, you know, and I, you know, as much as I love the idea of these really quick hacks, uh, you know, those, those aren't the only thing that you can use, but they fill in the gap between when you have the really powerful ones that are like really clicking in for you. I have the image of the tool belt. Yeah. I always have the tool box, but I actually oh. think the tool belt is better because it's on you. Like you're it's, wearing it. And you're like, embodied. I need the hammer. It's because it's embodied. Right? It's embodied. Um, I just want to briefly go back to uh, psychological gesture, the Michael Chekhov, which you can build your own character psycho- psychological gesture on your own. But when I've when I've uh, worked on it in an acting class and I put the people in a, in a scene together, like say it's Lenny and Meg in Crimes of the Heart, and they're literally standing next to each other and maybe repeatedly, maybe Lenny does her psychological gesture, then Meg, then Lenny, then Meg, then Lenny, then Meg. And I sometimes also add a, a vocal gesture, a sound, or mm-hmm. even a phrase. That informs their relationship, those actor-character relationships on stage. And I'm thinking you could then go drop into a scene <laughs> and you could maybe uh, do the staging of the scene you've already established and speak the words, but occasionally or after every line, add in the psychological gesture or add in the the, the sound or the words you're saying. And that's going to mm, energize. Yeah. It's going to give you information about how to play that scene. Yeah. So taking this abstracted idea, psychological gesture, what does that have to do with my scene and pulling it into the scene will almost always be useful. Cool. Um, The other thing I wanted to mention about viewpoints is I found it really interesting what the nine things were. Yes. Oh, I would talk for hours about that. And I'm sure this will come up again when we talk a little bit about language. Um, But I, I was really struck, especially by some of the, um, like, uh, for example, the the viewpoint um, of tempo, mm-hmm. and how that there is there's literally I think some inherent psychological meaning in something like tempo. Yeah. So there has been a lot of work on music and emotion and how music induces emotion, um, and for decades the most reliable way to induce a particular emotion in the in the lab was to play a particular type of music. Sadness works really well, for example, to play oh. a sad piece of music. And there are really reliable features of music that lead people to feel sad. Um, and there's been some really interesting work to show that some of that those properties are constrained to music per se and they're also not constrained by culture so um this awesome professor at dartmouth talia wheatley um did a a study where she had people it's a little hard to actually explain in words um, but she had people um have some sliders i think there were five or six sliders and they controlled things like tempo and pitch and um like um weight, uh, for lack of a better Uh word. Um, and she had them slide to create music that was sad or angry or fearful or things like that. And then what she did is she translated all of those properties to a bouncing ball. So she physicalized them. So there was a ball that either was light or heavy Uh and was rough or smooth Uh and bounced with, uh, you know, with a certain temp with, with a particular tempo. Um, and then she asked people who had never seen the sliders before, what emotion is this ball? And it was like, duh, of course yeah. that's an angry ball, right? right? Like right, when the ball right. moves in. And then she did this cross-culturally. So she went to a remote village in, I want to say, Cambodia. And she had people who hadn't been exposed to like Western displays of emotion and things like that. And there were a few ones that they didn't get quite right, but there was actually pretty good cross-cultural recognition of emotions in both the music and the ball. Um, and it works both ways, right? She has she had the Cambodian sample both observe the music and the ball that was uh-huh. created by Western samples. And then she also had them play the sliders and, to, and say, make this music or make this ball sad or angry or fearful or whatever. Um, so there's something like pretty deep about those properties and yeah. 
that, that, that cut through physicality, that cut through sound, yeah. um, and that even go into movement and, 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 um, those sort of dynamics that unfold over time. And I think even though characters are attached to specific culture and time period and usually gender and uh, age, that we should investigate or mm, honor the sort of, no, honor is the wrong word, pay attention to the power of these sort of cross-cultural things, such as emotion, such as sort of the primal, pr- uh, primal almost animalistic yeah. want or need or desire, yeah. right? So you're getting into sort of dirt, not dirtier words, but sort of more universal words rather yeah. than a hyper intellectual objective. Totally. And, w- and that's why it's so easy to put psychology onto animals when we see them engaging in things that adhere to yeah. those rules, right? Like we see, you know, an animal who is, you know, yipping with a high pitch and running around in circles right. and really erratic. And we're like, that's a super excited dog, right? Like we, we, and, and we're right. <laughs> um, you know, uh, as, as far as we can tell. Yeah. An animal, uh, you know, both of us have in our undergraduate or graduate work engaged in animal, extensive animal exercises, right? And I know there's people who have spent even more time with it as students or as teachers than I have. Yeah. But there's um, there's a bunch of exercises around this, but sometimes teachers will ask acting students to go to the zoo, yeah. right? Find a find an animal who, who characteristically actually moves and behaves very differently than you. Yeah. Like for me, it'd be a sloth because I move too fast. And sloths are gorgeous. Um, and and you are finding a way to embody all the physical characteristics totally. of, right? I visited my sisters. I have a twin sister who I've mentioned before, who's awesome. And she was an acting student at Northwestern when I was in college. And I visited her once. And I visited her like the day after they had gone to the zoo. And so like I just came in and there was just like, you know. And I've, I met a bunch of her friends who were in her acting class like outside. But I just saw them like be, you know, the, the golden <laughs> eagle. And I, I believe my sister was a sun bear. I want to say, Um, you know, and so I just have this like vision of all of these and some of them have gone on to be quite famous now. So I won't name any names, but I've seen them all be those animals that they've picked out. Yeah. I know very little about clowning, but if, you know, if we had a clowning expert on here, I think there'd be a, there'd be some overlap with that conversation in terms of finding your clown, your inner clown who, and who that person actually is and how they physicalize. Well, and you mentioned Commedia as well, which is really, I mean, in some ways I feel like that's a really good shortcut to the, all of those archetypes are really good shortcut to these bundled forms of physicality that have information in them. And you, it's, I'm guessing that those are usually a starting point you know, to, that it's not that you only, you're, you're restricted to just one of those things, but it's so easy to dive into the, yeah. I don't even know what the Commedia archetypes are. <laughs> Harlequino, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, so yeah. Commedia was a, a rena- I think it based in Italy, right? Uh, sort of way of sort of developing character and they had very uh, stock, right? Stereotypical characters. You have the mm-hmm. ingenues, you have uh, Harlequino, you have I wish de Torre, forgive me, I'm not an expert on Commedia. Um, but you have these these distinct characters where you you physicalize them in very specific right. ways, and they their 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 position in the story is very specific and sort of set. Um, it makes me think of this chapter that Anne Bogart wrote in her book, A Director Prepares on Stereotype, and that we see stereotype as a negative word because it simplifies who someone actually is. And her one of her many points in the essay is it's actually a great place for actors to begin their yeah. work. Right, because stereotype does have some some truthfulness inside of it, and then you build and you create 
um, you particularize and personalize and add nuance. And then that, that two-dimensional stereotype becomes three-dimensional. Totally. And I, I sometimes get around this. I, maybe I, I misuse it, but I sometimes use archetype instead of stereotype if sure. I am talking about that as a starting point. When I teach about stereotype, I often, it's, it's a sort of thin, you know, tricky line to walk, but I often say that stereotypes in and of themselves aren't necessarily bad. And even valence wise, like they're actually positive stereotypes about certain groups. What's problematic about stereotypes is when you replace the group information you have about somebody with individual information, oh. or you are satisfied to not gather individual information because you have group information. So if you're using it as a basis to gather, to individualize more, I think that's totally, you know, that can be totally fine. Um, but I think that what becomes problematic about stereotypes is, oh, I, all, I know all about you because I know XYZ about your group membership. Right. Um, and not allowing for deviation from that or not even being open to getting yeah. new information about individuals. That ties... Into, I think that is a really nice transition from step two to step three. Yeah. Um, and my brain is exploding right now, so it's hard to figure out what I want to say next. But if character, if there's an opportunity in building character um, with starting kind of general, starting even with stereotypes, starting with group, okay, I'm a woman. Mm-hmm. I'm a woman in her 40s. Well, how does a woman in her 40s stand? Let's just start there, right? I'm a mother. How does that person stand or move? Clearly I'm, clutching her once pregnant belly. Clearly, always. always, always 100% stereotype. of the time. <laughs> right? And then maybe honing in on what the text is giving you to then create a more individual, more particular, but still static character. Mm-hmm. The way uh, our step three is the physicality, the the spontaneity and dynamism of physicality that happens moment to moment or scene by scene. Right. And I want to speak... Um, Tons of different ways to talk about this. I was reviewing the viewpoints book, and some of the power of viewpoints, if you you know, if you engage in a lot of the exercises, is this idea of surrendering choice making to other people in the space, mm. and the idea that there isn't. You don't want to ever say my character would never do that, right? right? If we are all full of opposition, if I am a generally perceived to be a kind, nice person, there have been any number of moments where I have not been kind or nice, right? I don't believe it for a minute. Oh, thank you. Um, So this idea of of, um, possibility that when you are creating character, we are using stable, we are using, you know, I'm just going to stick with stable or baseline characteristic. There still is always room yeah. for character to be dynamic and even to behave in an opposite way from they did from how they did earlier in the play. I'm so glad you said that. And it wasn't related to physicality, but I actually remember one of the most transformative moments of my like college career was when uh, an acting teacher told me exactly this. There is no such thing that your character wouldn't do. Yes. And it wasn't necessarily related to physicality, but her point was, I think it was Amy Freed who told me this. I could be misattributing it, but her point was, you are the character. And as soon as you do yes. that thing, the character just did it. Yeah. And my like, you know, late adolescent, early adult brain clicked and went, dude, mm-hmm. consistency is overrated. And I actually mm-hmm. like took that to heart in my everyday life mm-hmm. where I I don't let myself think like, well, this is something Kateri wouldn't do. Yep. Like if I choose to do it, yep. then it's something that Kateri has done. Yeah. And my unfolding character of me in my lifetime right. is just based on all of the things that I do. And so there be, you know, even if there's something that 20 year old Kateri never would have done, that doesn't mean that 30, you know, right, you know right. what I mean? Like, so 
it's um, it's it's, it's and, freeing. It's yeah. really freeing. And and Ashley Temple has directed me a lot. And I had a cold maybe during rehearsal, and she said, "So Macon in Abundance, the character who I was playing has a cold." Like it's it's where you're at as a human being. Yeah. We are quick to censor and say the character would never have a cold. Right. The character would never feel tired. The character would never have a hurt knee. And you then you go well. Like, why not? Totally. I, I directed a play here. I directed Sarah Rule's Eurydice, and one of the three stones um, broke her ankle or broke her foot. And, um, you know, of course you go, ah, the stone wouldn't have a broken f- foot. <laughs> <laughs> That's not okay. Oh, should I recast? And then you think, well, no, you can get around that. She could have mm, a... Interesting word called? choice. What? Broken a- leg cast. Anyway, oh, sorry. Oh. Just thought I'd exactly. My brain just maybe went, I should recast. Um, so you know, is it is it a stone who kind of moves with a broken foot, or yeah. we just decided to stick her in like an old fashioned sort of wheelchair, yeah. and she and that impacted her yeah. with character because it was it became an hey. easier way for her to get around. Stones and, roll all the time. Exactly, and it it. I don't want to say it improved the performance, but it was just as good and yeah. was perhaps more interesting. Well, and I think that we'll probably revisit this when it comes to casting too, because I think a lot of times people get really stuck when it comes to particular types where you would think, oh, well, that you know, that character would never be, um, you know, on the, on, a, on the heavier side. That has to be a very lithe character, you know, right. or that character would never be of this or that ethnicity or of this or that age. Um, and why not? So, so number three, I actually think Kateri is going to have more to say about this than I will. Um, but as we've already said, it, we're treating number three as the the physical characteristics um, relevant to time, relevant to a specific moment in time, relative relative to a specific uh, uh, time period, not time period scene. Let me just say scene. And when I mentioned the viewpoints, Kateri got excited about one called kinesthetic response, totally. which in its definition is a spontaneous reaction to stimulus outside of you. So that the the choices that you're making as an actor, vocally, physically, imaginatively, are not all set. You've done a ton of preparation, but as we've mentioned in one of our other episodes, what's actually, you're working with a bunch of different tools in a moment. And one of them, one of the most important ones is what is actually happening between you and the other scene partner. So going into a scene, assuming that the character will uh, physically behave this way or feel a certain way is often not accurate. Right. Right. And I think that when, again, as I talk about my wearing my emotion scientist hat, um, a lot of the way that emotions are embodied um, would fall into number three, right? Like someone says something that makes you mad and how do you respond to that and what's an authentic way to physicalize that emotion. Um, And our bodies don't only respond to emotion. Um, As Anne said at the outset of this episode, when we were sort of coming up with the parallel, like what do actors call this? What do psychologists call this? Um, I floated embodied cognition um, because embodied cognition refers to a subset of um, a a small area of research within psychology that points to the fact that even outside of emotion, which a lot of people don't deny is embodied, the thoughts we have about other things tend to be expressed in our body and that has consequences as well. So, um, you know, there's been a lot that has been said about, especially when you are planning movement, that that um, engages parts of your brain 
that are, mm-hmm. are preparing your muscles for that movement, right? Mm-hmm. So if you are working out how to do a complex physical action, you are not just working that out in your brain in a glass jar. Like you're actually kind of taking a little bit of a trial run through the parts of your brain that would actually cause those muscles to move. And so there is a benefit to uh, allowing sort of that movement when you are considering that. So if you are, if you're seen and you're talking about doing something, let's say you're talking about how it would feel to like stab someone Mm -hmm. that's got to be somewhere in Macbeth, right? Uh, Like (laughs) 2000 times. Yeah. (laughs) Like that when you are talking about that, you are not, it's not just words. It's not just imagination, but there's actually activation of the arm muscles you would use to stab and, and maybe even activation of the sensory, you know, apparatus that would feel the wetness and the stickiness of the blood and and all of that sort of thing. Um, so that basically that, that most of our, I think some really hardcore embodied cognition people would say all of our thoughts and feelings and plans and everything we process is different because we process it in a brain that's connected to a physical apparatus. Mm -hmm. And we're always considering the ramifications those thoughts and feelings have for our physical apparatus. I want to yes. And that I was talking to some, some dear theater friends and they were saying, Hey, did you watch the Olympic athletes like the skiers or the the skaters before they went on and you can picture Lindsay Vaughn with her eyes closed she's you can right she's at the top she's gonna go on she's gonna do her thing in five minutes and you can visually watch her with her hands and her body kind of move through each of the individual gates um and she's re she's active and apparently when that happens I'm just yes anding and you know so much more about this than I do what's happening in your brain the neurons are firing right yeah, in ways similar some to, of those motor planning to neurons. when you're actually doing it yeah yeah it's not obviously not exactly identical but there's an overlap basically between the types of the, the parts of our brain that imagine future movement and that 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 relive past movement and the ones that are active when we're actually engaging in that movement yeah so tied into this is the idea i mentioned briefly in part one which is that i can you can look in an actor on stage, and you can see if the body is integrated or disintegrated. Um, I got those words from an amazing teacher with City Company named Bar- Barney O'Hanlon. I believe he got them from Bonnie Bainbridge Cohen and her body mind centering. It's the idea, and and then the training briefly is is you disintegrate, you separate your body out into six appendages. So you have two arms, two legs, uh, your head and your tailbone, and you exercise each of those, and then you integrate them, you put them together. And this is tied to how babies learn to crawl and walk and Mm -hmm. things like that. Um, But sometimes I see good actors, people who are good with language, good with energy, and they look discombobulated. That's a a Kateri phrase, which I love. (laughs) Right? Their arms are moving, they're gesturing, their legs are moving, their head is moving, but it's totally disconnected from the torso. And I, you know, who knows why I think to some extent it's terrifying to engage with your belly and your pelvis and your heart, because those are the things that in a way really matter. But when you see someone with the training to integrate, which comes from a lot of different kinds of training, that person becomes more compelling to watch. Right. Um, and this, this sparked, I, I feel like this might spark you to talk about well, it, a it reminds thing. me of, you know, I, I feel like at some, at some point in an actor prepares, Stanislavski has this, um, description of an actor who is, uh, you know, in a rage and is flailing, you know, yes. arms all over the place, but you can tell that it's inauthentic. Yeah. And to me, you know, especially as it relates to emotion, 
almost all of our actions have a purpose, right? Like if we snatch, if I snatched your water bottle off the table right now and grabbed it to myself because mm. you, I thought you stole it from me a year ago, mm-hmm. I'm taking it back and bringing it closer to me because I don't want you to have it. And like that action of my arm reaching out and snatching it has this fun, it's fundamentally tied into my objective, yes. which is to I retain want. what mm-hmm. was mine. And I want to mm-hmm. bring it into my core. Mm-hmm. And even if someone who is in an angry rant, a lot of times the arm and and leg movements that come from that, you know, are to obliterate the people around them, right? It's to cause damage, right? Mm -hmm. Like when you stomp your feet, Mm -hmm. you're like kind of hoping there's something you're crushing Mm -hmm. under there, Mm -hmm. right? So the internal and external are are married. They're blended. The external is totally tied directly to an an internal uh, psychological want. Absolutely. And I, and we are really tuned to be able to identify the difference between authentic and inauthentic motion to the point that, so this, this overlap that I was talking about between the parts of our brain that engage in motor planning and the parts of our our brain that actually enact motor sequences when we are physicalizing them, a lot of people refer to as the mirror neuron system, Mm. um, which is, uh, some people find a little bit problematic. The name, it's a very catchy name. And a lot of people have heard about the mirror neuron system, but the mirror neuron system is basically, um, a bunch of of neurons or a, a particular part of the brain that um, w- when people first uh, identified it were neurons, again, that fired to the same extent or to very similar extents when a monkey, for example, was reaching out to grab a peanut and when a monkey saw another monkey reach out to grab uh. a peanut. So it's this overlap between I watch what you're doing and this is what I'm doing. And there are actually some extremely wide-reaching theories about the purpose of the mirror neuron system uh-huh. that start to actually get into, some people will argue that the mirror neuron system is the origin of empathy because it's the connection between when you do that, what do you want? And when I do that, what do I want? That makes me say, I think I understand what you want in this situation. You must be hungry. That's a pretty broad theory that I'm not sure I I would fully jump on board with, but it is true that there's this overlap. And the thing that is really fascinating to me is that, you know, they've done this, a version of this experiment over and over again to look at the mirror neuron system response when the monkey's reaching for the peanut, when you watch another monkey reaching for a peanut. And you can show a monkey a video of a human. And it also responds when a human reaches for a peanut, yeah. right? So you can show a monkey the human reaching for the peanut, mirror neuron system goes off. You can show a monkey a video of the human reaching for the peanut, but you edit out the peanut the monkey still responds. It still understands that's an intentional grasp. You can show the monkey a video of a human pretending to grab for a peanut that was never there. And the mirror neuron system goes, huh? It doesn't understand. It it, Uh it uh registers that Uh there isn't an authentic intention Uh there, right? Because, and the, the thought is, is that there are really small differences in the way you enact those movements when you are actually trying to grasp something versus when you're just pretending. And I think that's what's totally happening on stage when you see someone who's disintegrated yeah. is that there isn't that authenticity yeah. and you you detect it on some level. And probably not everyone detects it the same. There's probably some amount of practice and intuition that like goes into that. Right. Um, so this launches me into the final thing I want to make sure we talk about and I have questions about, which is that is a great example of needing uh, needing the inside life, the inner life, yeah. the objective and the want to then make the outer life believable. However, I actually want to argue and advocate for the opposite because as we've been preparing this episode, speaking to Larry Hecht from our first episode, speaking to other, you know, uh, 
exemplary actors with decades of experience, they are they tend to favor the outside in, starting with character physicality or working with physicality and trusting that that's going to inform the inner life. And what's funny is that Stanislavski started um, sort of with the inside out thinking and moved on to the outside in. I wanted to give a few examples of how outside in has has helped um, and then end with a question for you. Um, when you work with certain directors, I'm just thinking in the world of viewpoints, they will encourage you to build a scene as a director or an actor physically. So, okay, um, I think you should stand there. I'll stand here. Then I'm going to put my hand on your shoulder, right? I'm going to push you out of the way, and then I'm going to turn my back on you. So it's all physical direction, and we're not really talking about psychologically what's going on. Sure. And I've had many instances where I've been either in rehearsal or in performance, and I've done something physically, and it affects, the, it affects me um, energetically or yeah. psychologically. Directors have given me, my friend Ashley Temple has given me specific physical direction for the end of Savage and Limbo and with, without any explanation of why. And it somehow fed me to know what was happening inside of that character in that moment. And then I've had moments, I had a few examples, um, you know, I'm Portia in Julius Caesar talking to Brutus and Brutus won't turn, his back is turned to me. Right. And this is my husband who, with whom I have a great relationship and he won't look at me. He won't look me in the eye. I feel frustration. I feel anger. I feel demoralized. And there are many other examples. Um, and so I guess the question for you is if, if in the acting world, it's proven that outside in that physicalization leads to a more comprehensive understanding of the inner life. Why is the science not there? Yeah. as much. You said there's some, but not as much. Yeah. I mean, so it's always been there theoretically, right? And so science is this constant process of uh, th- throwing out a theory, gathering data that would um, that that would support your theory, or if you're really brave, trying to run an experiment that would disprove your theory and then getting the results and going on from there. So within the realm of emotion, for example, there's long been theories of physiological and muscular feedback feeding into emotion. So this is the idea that um, you don't run because you're afraid you're afraid because you run mm-hmm. right and 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 so some people have, mm-hmm. have actually mm-hmm. put this forward for a long long time and this rear it like re it, uh this aspect of theory tends to to pop back in every i don't know few decades or so someone goes but wait what a second what if it's the other way around and there have been a few really um famous studies that have documented aspects of this feedback of this feedback so in one case, there was a famous facial feedback study um, where they had people um, generate smiles, um, and they wanted to do this without using the word smile because that's a loaded emotional word, right? And so, uh, yeah, how would you get someone to move their their mouth into a smile would, if you? Yeah, I would say lift your the the edges of your the creases. Yeah. So if people were good enough at doing that, they could, but again, usually a lot of times that involves putting them in front of a mirror and then they see themselves smiling, which also has an emotional meaning. So what they did is they said, um, hold this pencil or pen between your teeth in a, in a horizontal way. And that causes you to lift the corners of your mouth and the control condition, which was quite clever is to hold the pen, but the other way, hold it lengthwise and make the tip point down. 
which produces a little bit of a frown, right? So, and, uh, and they, they, they were, they thought they were careful enough to toss out the people who said, I think you were making us smile and frown. And they basically just said, how do you feel after you do these two different things? And, and in some cases they had them watch something and see if it enhanced their experience of watching it. And there was some evidence preliminarily that their people felt happier when you force mm. them to make a smile yeah, than when that. you force them to make a frown. Um, that's one of the things that hasn't been replicated a ton. There've been other people who've tried to reproduce this. And if they're a little bit more strict about who they, you know, exclude for, for suspecting the hypotheses, for example, they don't tend to see these reliable effects on, on emotion. Um, you know, there's some other examples of larger scale bodily movements. So some people might've seen the Ted talk on power posing and how this causes people to feel more confident and that it might even have physiological implications. And some of the physiological implications of power posing of taking up more space have been not replicated. The subjective stuff is a little bit more, um, Mm robust. Um, it, you know, nine times out of 10, if you have people, uh, strike a pose that takes up more space, they say they feel more confident and more Mm -hmm. in charge, which might be all that matters. Um, but it's hard. It's basically, it's been scientifically a little bit harder to document the reverse one, but theoretically a lot of people have been interested in it. Some people still have the intuition that there's something there. Um, it's just been a little squirrelier to actually objectively find evidence for, but I, I, let me offer a hypothesis, which is, I suspect it requires experience where the two are aligned. You ha- and and whether that's going through your everyday life and noticing the alignment of your physicality with your internal state, or whether it's going through acting training that does start inside out, where you start psychologically and see how that flows physically, and then you notice, notice, mm. notice. So whether it's it's staged, artificial, or realistic, you have to be aware of that alignment for the physicality to make as big of an impact as it would, because I think it would, I, I, I suspect that if you were, had an 18 year old in your acting class, you maybe wouldn't go to starting with physicality as much first. Mm. Maybe. Why not? Well, because I get my hypothesis is that I think it requires a little bit more of experience Mm -hmm. and practice and, and awareness for that to be as impactful for it to be as, so maybe to float out a scientific hypothesis that you would see stronger evidence of this kind of feedback if you used actors, maybe people with a significant amount of acting training or maybe meditators, just people who are a little bit more dancers, dancers, people who are more aligned, their internal and external experience. And I, and I just realized I'm teaching a viewpoints in Suzuki class at the Denver center right now. And I have a couple dancers in there. And one of them talked about um, when, when we're working on Suzuki, so much of Suzuki is, is plugging your feet into the floor Mm. and the footwork. And so it, it, excites dancers in that way. And one said, I was imagining like I just, my foot was bigger. Like my foot was just like clamped into the floor and was, again, just imaginatively, you know, two or three times as big as her foot actually is. And it, uh, it made me think of singing training where when you're trying to sing higher notes, sometimes you just picture your head just being humongous and your (laughs) sound is filling your head with it. And that, um, something we haven't talked about, um, during the podcast in preparation is that idea of imaginatively, right, creating, um, making choices in your imagination that can feed your physicality. Yeah. Well, and your brain um, responds to that. And and Mm. it it reminds me of, I think I mentioned this to you before, they did a study of... um, so people have uh, their own map of like how much space their body takes up, yeah. right? 
Um, and huh. uh, people actually expand this when you give them um, appendages that they control that have a particular amount of space. So the easiest example of this being cars, right? When we drive cars that are small or big, yeah. um, that if you have people drive around in an SUV, for example, they actually, so first of all, this is adaptive, is people start to expand their representation of their body to include the car. And this makes it um, easier for people to like park well and like oh. not hit things in their car because sure. they start to get intuitive grasp of this is how far away my car is, right? But if you have people drive in a SUV versus like a little teeny tiny, you know, VW Bugger, do they still make this? Um, <laughs> you know, know, a little two door, whatever, for a while, um, that they start to uh, th- they start to represent their own bodies as taking up more space if they've been driving the SUV around versus if they've been driving the smaller car oh, around. Wow. Yeah, so like there's this imaginative yeah. increase or decrease of size depending on. What you're yeah. driving around, and in, in the car oh, wow. case, there's a you have you you actually do control the movements of the car, so it's a little it's one step removed from a, imagination. But I'm not surprised at all that if you imagined, yeah, your head is bigger, you would <laughs> you would sing better, or you just have a big head. The, maybe one more thing I want to talk about is briefly we in our preparation we said, hey, there are also. Um, sort of a step four, right? Oh, yeah. There are, which is not true for every play, but there are styles of plays where the style of the play, the world of the play, the physical world of the play makes you have to adjust your physicality. Commedia is a great example. Um, you you mentioned uh, Warhorse, right? Oh yeah, like puppetry. Um, um, and also sometimes directors themselves have a very specific physical aesthetic that you must adhere to, mm-hmm. uh, like Suzuki has a very, very, very rigid way um, of, of wanting his actors to move and behave on stage. I feel good, Katiri. Anything else you want to... I think that's just about all we had to say about physicality and embodiment, and I'm super excited to keep talking about a few other things in the future. Yeah, episode four is on presence, episode five on language, and that's season one. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Bye. Talk to you soon. Bye. Keep listening as we continue the conversation with Reagan Linton. We are super delighted to have with us today Reagan Linton, and I'll say a few words about her, her experiences and qualifications. So Reagan Linton is an actor writer and theater artist from Denver, Colorado. She's the artistic director of Family Theater Company in Denver, which is a nonprofit theater that reimagines established works while exclusively casting actors with all nature of disabilities. Reagan received her master's of social work at the University of Denver and then her MFA in acting from UC San Diego as the first wheelchair user to ever attend the prestigious program. She was recently honored with the 2017 True West Award for Colorado Theater Person of the Year and UC San Diego's Triton 40 Under 40 Award. As one of the few professional theater actors who use a wheelchair, Reagan has become a prominent voice for inclusion in the national theater community and has served as facilitator with the Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Institute at the Theater Communications Group, or TCG. She's performed with the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, La Jolla Playhouse, Pasadena Playhouse, Big Eye in Osaka, Japan, Mixed Blood in Minnesota, uh, The Apotheca, New York, and Family, among others. Uh, her writing has been featured in New Mobility Magazine, National TCG Diversity Salons, Hollywood Fringe, and Chalk Rep. You can find more info on her website, which is uh, reaganlinton.com. We'll also put a link to that on our website 
the actor's mind. So welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for reading that whole bio. I feel like it was longer than (laughs) in reading than it is. No, we want, we want people to know who we're talking to. Yeah. Wonderful. Good. Well, thanks. So (laughs) we're thrilled that you're here. And because this is an episode on physicality, my first question is, can you tell us briefly about your actor training, especially the physical, the physical training movement training you did at UC San Diego? Yes. So and maybe I'll just give a little bit of context also uh, because other people are not sitting here in the room. Uh, so I'm a wheelchair user. I, When I was in undergrad at USC, I was paralyzed in a car accident. Um, the technical classification is T4 Asia A complete, which essentially means that my fourth thoracic vertebrae and below, uh, I'm permanently paralyzed with no um, feeling or movement. Um, so I use a manual wheelchair to get around full time. And when I auditioned for UCSD, I was the first wheelchair user to kind of come through the program. And so I had some conversations with Charlie Oates, who's the movement, was the movement uh, professor there, who's fabulous. <laughs> and, um, and you know, we knew we were going to have to constantly adapt, and, but that we weren't going to change anything off the bat. Mm-hmm. We were just going to move, move through and see, you know, what, what, um, what things we had to, to slightly modify. And I think one of the, one of the first things I'll say is that everybody has a body that's different. You know, in, in our society, we like to use this binary of like able and disabled bodies, which I don't necessarily ascribe to. Um, I think, you know, we all have bodies that work in unique ways. And so mostly actor training for me was about, um, rather than seeing my body as disabled or broken or however the rest of society might see it, seeing it as a unique creative entity that I just had to get to know better and discover what are its, you know, unique capabilities. How does it move? How does it sit? Um, What is the posture like? You know, so really um, the grad training was so great because it just gave me that time and space to focus on my body and getting to know it better and getting to know what its um, assets, where its assets laid, lied, lay, (laughs) where they were. (laughs) I'm, I'm I'm curious if you remember what Charlie Oates, how he responded, what how he learned from that process. I got to work with him in January. It was fantastic. Yeah, he, uh, you know, I, I mean, some of, and I think he would say the same thing, like some of his exercises were kind of things that he had done for a long time. And so I remember doing like a catwalk on the ground where, you know, everyone else is kind of in a, uh, a cat-like position leaning over. And I was like, well, how do, how do I do this? Because, and, and what the biggest thing was, what is the intention of the exercise? Because often the manifestation of the exercise can, can be very, um, you know, if, if you have bodies that look the same and kind of operate on the same general principles that are the same, um, then the manifestation will look like one thing. But if you think about, well, what is the intention? Just like if you're doing yoga, what's the intention behind each pose? Mm-hmm. What are you trying to open up? What are you trying to accomplish? So we would think about, okay, we're doing a cloud walk. I can't necessarily pick up my feet and set them down, but if the intention is about control and balance, and then what can I do? Can I do a wheelie and try to set my wheelie down in, you know, as though I'm coming down on a cloud, even mm-hmm. if it's my foot that's not coming and, and springing back up. So, um, so he was very open to adapting and, you know, finding those different ways and really thinking about the intention that was behind the exercise. I love that because <laughs> I think about our, our first episode on objective. I think about objective or want or intention and that various characters can have the same, can play the same role and, and have the same objective. And yet how that body and how that 
person uh, pursues it will be different. And right, that's great. Yeah, but I think we get so so sometimes used to as actors, you know, emulating or trying to replicate what we see around us as opposed to really focusing on who are we and what does our unique physicality or mentality or whatever bring to a particular character as opposed to trying to be what somebody else has done with that. Yeah. Yeah. And we talked a lot about sort of raising awareness of your own physicality too. And Anne had this wonderful <laughs> metaphor of um, having your body be a vessel, but then you fill it with energy in different ways. And so yes. I think you have to sort of get to know and everyone's vessel is a little bit different and some people's vessels roll and some people's yes. jump and, <laughs> you know, and then, you, but then there are also similar techniques to fill it with different types of energy that it doesn't matter the shape or uh, sort of movement style of the vessel really. Right. Um, I was wondering too, it sounds like you had a really great experience with training then. Have you ever had someone who's training you or directing you who is maybe using a sort of shortcut and not asking you for exactly what you need, but maybe asking you for something that's very like overtly physical without getting into the, like, what's the underlying, mm. you, mm -hmm. is that a sensible yeah. question? Yeah, no, I, I whether it's an audition or whether it's a, um, a performance or training, it always felt like I had to go above and beyond just to reach that point of being equal with what other people were accomplishing, um, which, you know, is, is not necessarily fair. I think, and that's where the kind of expectations, as you're saying, have to shift in terms of, well, what, what is the intent, you know, right. what are we trying to, um, get a student say in training to, right. to come away with? Um, I mean, at least when I was at UCSD, I think, they were very open to realizing like my growth or my accomplishment might look different from others. But at the same time, the underlying thing is just, are you seeing somebody grow and shift and morph and become more self-aware? Um, and that doesn't have much to do with the body or being in the room or, you know, it's all about like, well, is this person making different choices here? Um, are they expanding their opportunity for choices? Um, so, but again, I think it's, it depends on what you're, you know, if you're, <laughs> it depends on what the discipline is sure. and what, you know, are there main principles that you're trying to get across? Obviously like Shakespeare is a different animal. Like you, um, you need to do the work, you need to do the scansion, you need to do that, uh, um, all of that in order to demonstrate your skill in that regard of knowing like how to, yeah. how to dissect a, um, a piece of text. But, um, but I ha I mean, I guess, yeah, I, I have experienced, I guess what would just be um, people modifying what they were expecting, like either expecting more because they were assuming they were going to get less with me uh, mm. or the opposite where it felt like they weren't expecting enough because they were like treating me gingerly as though like, sure. oh, but um, luckily at UCSD, I think we, uh, the main thing was communication and being able to communicate. Here's what I can do. Here's what I can't. Here's what's challenging for me, um, whatever. And, uh, and then being able to kind of build expectations together off of that, which I know as a professor is really Really challenging because it's like totally. you might have a certain body of knowledge that you're just trying to make sure yeah. the student knows or whatever. Um, and that gets me thinking about the director-actor yeah. uh, collaboration. That yes. as a director, when I'm directing, I know you're a director too, I come in often with preconceived notions with my own specific idea of how I want a character to play. But the actor is going to come in with his or her own ideas. And I mm -hmm. sometimes have to be humble and realize that theirs are just as good and sometimes better than my ideas. So having that yes. sort of con the 
the consensus, the sort of consensual conversation, the consent that you, that you are going to learn from each other, yes. that one of you doesn't necessarily know more about mm-hmm. this in, yeah. in certain situations. Which is hard when we've trained for years and years and we feel like we know more about right. something. Right. But you kind of have to, you know, flatten that hierarchy of knowledge yeah. and be like, okay, well, this person's bringing in something different. And that's, it's one thing that I, in my work with Family Theater Company, you know, we have actors of all different abilities and all different experience levels coming into the room. But I see that as the greatest asset of like, how do I take somebody that has never been on stage before, might have a unique charisma to them, might have a different way of walking or moving, and like, what are they going to bring to, you know, a Romeo or a Juliet or something that is going to be not at all what I expected, but but elevate and change that piece in a way that um, is beautiful and yeah. and creative. So <laughs> so let me ask you a, a yeah. similar question: When you are directing uh, with family, and maybe there's a specific example, how do you guide uh, these actors who are living with a variety of disabilities um, into the physica- into the character physicality specifically? Mm. Well, first I start from a place of safety and making sure they're doing whatever feels safe to them. Um, But then I think, you know, again, similarly to myself, one of the things that I tend to see is um, actors feeling like they have to go above and beyond um, and doing something that's too big and not really appropriate to the character because they're trying to like get at what they think the director wants. So I try to just I mean, I try to encourage people to to pull back and just use like the assets that they have already. That those you being me, just watching you, human beings are fascinating, particularly <laughs> human beings who maybe have something different that's physical or you know emotional or cognitive about them that's a little bit overt. Um, so you being on stage is enough. Like you are enough, um, which I think is a an a. a listen, we all need, or or a message we all need to hear as human beings, but particularly if you've been marginalized or, you know, disenfranchised in some way. Um, And then what are the unique quirks that like you have about you um, that you can bring? You know, if you're using a cane, what are those funny things you do with your cane? If you, if you have a hard time sitting because of your balance, then rather than trying to like force it and, and, you know, pick up the speed so that you look like you're sitting like everyone else. No, throw yourself into allowing yourself to kind of struggle in that moment with however you struggle naturally, because that's going to bring something interesting to the character. Um, and people that do that really well in family, you know, like we have an actress, Lucy Ruchis, who has Parkinson's disease. And I feel like one of the, the beautiful things about Lucy is she's never pushing herself to do something that is unnatural. She's kind of living in her body with Parkinson's, whether it's shaking, whether it's speaking a little more slowly, um, and putting that into whatever character she's playing. So, um, so yeah, I think mostly what I try to get, um, especially our actors and family, is to just honor who they are, which they've grown up, many of them, or whenever they acquire their disability or whatever, they've... Um, they spend a lot of their time not honoring who they are and trying to fit into society, trying to look quote unquote normal, trying to be um, worthy. And so I think the safe space of, of family and the theater in general yeah. is that you get to come in and just just be who you are and honor that um, physically and otherwise. So I, th- I guess that's my yeah. my first no, approach. I, <laughs> and then we start to like push the envelope and see like, okay, well, what can you do, you know? Right. Um, but I think starting from that place of like, you have enough tools right here in who you are and just honor them and use them. 
Do you mind if I ask a little bit more yeah. about that? Just because you, I agree with you that you know, at its best, theater can be a really safe space, but historically, it's not always been a very inclusive space. And right. I wonder if you could talk a little bit because um, I find every family show I see like unbelievably beautiful, and it it's just all, everything you just described happens you know, nearly continuously throughout the entire show. And so one of my favorite things about seeing any production is if I leave and I go, I'll never see anything just like that again. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted to, cause you, t- you, you do a lot of inclusion, inclusion work. Um, and I wonder, uh, what you could say a little bit about the power of people in general, and maybe even children specifically seeing people who are like them on stage and having audience members who potentially, unfortunately have never seen people who move like them or talk like them, right. um, or, or look like them on stage. Yeah. I think, you know, I, I'm one of them when I, after I was paralyzed, I had never seen actors using wheelchairs on stages except at family. But at that point I hadn't seen family yet. So, um, and I was just like, I don't think this is possible. And on top of that, it's about the other messages that you get from our larger society, um, about what, you know, what people can or can't do. Um, and you know, this is not just around disability. It used to be around actors of color who was like, Oh, they can't speak Shakespeare. Like we're not going to put them in place or women, um, or people of different genders, gender identities, um, of, you know, thinking that those identities are going to lessen the quality Mm -hmm. of their craft. Um, and so first it's that internal shift of making sure that all of our actors know that they, they have the same potential for craft, um, in their own way. Um, but um, but yeah, and then I think it, it is hugely impactful. We have a lot of audience members, um, you know, with and without disabilities who come to see the show. And I think for equally for them alike, obviously, if you're a young person living with a disability or using a wheelchair or whatever it is, it has an amputation or whatever, um, and you see somebody like you, all of a sudden it's like, oh, the world of possibility opens up. But I also think that extends to people of all abilities um, of just thinking like, okay, maybe this, this kind of ruse that I'm sold in society about like the perfect body or the perfect actor or whatever. Um, maybe that's actually not true. And, and you get to see something that proves that, um, that people are doing the work and doing it well. Um, which is why, you know, I think the actors that I gravitate towards are those who, uh, constantly are, are kind of being messy and changing up our expectation mm-hmm. of like what we think of as good acting. I don't think of like, again, the binary of like good and bad. It's more what is interesting, what's intriguing, what's going to, you know, present something to you that you've never seen before that opens your, your um, mind about what yeah. is possible in the world. So my head is exploding because you're saying things that I've I've heard come out of my mouth. The idea yeah. that I I love messy acting. Oh, I yeah. love uh, seeing I don't know full productions, but yeah, uh, performances that are sort of maybe they only eighty percent work, but this person is is you can't take your eyes off of them because yes. how um, I don't know how creative, how experimental, how how um, risky they're being mm-hmm. within the sort of safe confines of. Yeah. of the play world. And I think the mess, I love the mess. And I think what I I try to remind myself of is to allow the mess to be part of my craft. That if the mess comes in, I think what what switches it from being like, you know, maybe quote unquote, not good acting or performing is if the mess happens and then you're like, oh, oh God, the mess happened. And uh, <laughs> uh, what am I going to do about that? I got to cover it up, you know, whatever. As opposed to like, oh, the mess happened. Yes. And okay, move on with right. it. Um, you know, I've had, I've had different 
situations um, physically too, where, I mean, whether it's like me not having stability in the way that I want it or um, falling out of my chair when I'm dancing or, you know, whatever, or like peeing on stage, my bladder doesn't work, you know? So, uh, I mean, all those things um, of like, okay, well, how do I use it? How do I just embrace it and move forward and keep doing it the wakes job. you up to the moment exactly right? there's no exactly. falling asleep exactly. when your underwear is wet <laughs> exactly <Right>? yeah. exactly <laughs> yeah and then your mind is like focus you know you're thinking of like how do i change in between acts and how do i do all this you know yeah. um so there you know yeah. it, it enhances the the capacity of your brain to fire as well yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. may i ask you as an actor um I'm going to start generally and try and get a little more specific. As an actor, how does physicality come into play? We've already sort of talked about that. But what specific tools you use to kind of hook into character physicality and mm-hmm. to build and to layer mm-hmm. character physicality? I think, I mean, first, time and attention is a huge one. So um, I, you know, I'm actually an actor that I think my way, quote unquote, way in is more through text that that mm-hmm. tends to I've never been like the the actor who whose way in is kind of more through their physicality. However, part of my training was discovering, oh, I have a lot more way in through my physicality than I expected. You know, what does actor neutral look like if you have a different um, a different body? And I think that was a huge tool for me that mm-hmm. I learned of like, okay, each body has their neutral. Um, it often makes me think of Ayurvedic medicine and principles that like you apparently, you know, their, their philosophy is you come into the world and you have like your set uh, uh, levels of doshas. And, but every <laughs> Everyone's set level looks different. Um, So it's not about being a gingerbread cookie cut of a person Mm -hmm. and that that's actor neutral. It's what what is the actor neutral for your own body where you're completely relaxed and grounded? um, And then how do you layer on top of that? And then for me, it's about, again, how do you layer in a way that is not pushing it too much. Cause you know, one of the things being on wheels that I would tend to do is like, okay, I gotta make sure that I look like I can do this. I can do this acting thing. So I'm gonna, you know, wheel myself on stage as fast as possible. And then, uh, you know, come to, and I was like, but that's not actually natural for the character that I'm playing. Right. So it was one of the challenges that I had to work on um, with my wheels and the speed at which I move. And then what are the, Uh, thinking about posture and what's on the inside of your body and how does that affect little things, whether they're tiny gestures, you know, and you and I have done viewpoints and thinking about, you know, the different viewpoints that can be employed. Viewpoints was a huge toolbox for me in thinking about all the different aspects of, you know, whether it's architecture, gesture, you know, uh, tempo, those are all things that every single body can utilize. I'm smiling because yeah. I brought it up once or twice or 10 times during, <laughs> during the episode. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so there's not, I guess there's not one thing, but the, the first thing that I always think about is I will still have, you know, sometimes in my head, um, when I when I start to play a role, this this apprehension around like, well, how do I make my body work for this character? It's not what people were expecting. You know, it's not what the playwright was thinking when they wrote it. Um, but then I shift as quickly as possible into, okay, but what are the opportunities with that? Yeah, you know, what are the opportunities? If I'm going to play the baker's wife and yeah. into the woods, then how does that enhance her character? She's working her ass off and, you know, to, to make the, their life and their, their bakery work and support her husband. So how does that even become maybe a little more challenging because she's using a wheelchair through all of it. So, and I, and I, I think even actors, uh, who don't identify as having disabilities, uh, 
have a similar sort of question or mm-hmm. related question, which is, you know, when you begin to tackle, when I begin to tackle, I'll just talk about myself. When I begin to tackle <laughs> a character, I, I, I sometimes, I let you, at least twice you've talked about overdoing it, like going a little too far. Mm-hmm. And I sometimes, um, you know, preparing to play Queen Margaret, I think, oh gosh, this is easy to go a little too far, right? <laughs> to be too loud, to be too mean, to be too vicious, mm-hmm. right? To be too vengeful, um, to dig on a shape, a sort of monolithic, you know, extreme <laughs> shape. Mm-hmm. And then, so how do you find the, tr- the, the humanity, the me inside of that mm-hmm. without playing the more cartoony or too extreme, regardless yes. of the scale of the performance, whether it's naturalism or Shakespeare or whatever, mm-hmm. finding you inside of this thing and not just the external superficial I think yeah. I'm supposed right. to do it this right way right this particular way yeah well, combined with just run of the mill imposter syndrome of like I oh, can't totally. believe I'm playing this role <laughs> and with, did they make a mistake and I'm like you're really gonna be able to do it totally you know? totally which I think even probably the best actors you know have to some extent well too. Yeah. <laughs> it's and the beauty of getting older I have to say is that you spent more time with yourself absolutely and so you have more self-possession and so it feels more worthwhile the older I get to just bring me to the table rather than just to kind of dismiss me and just do character. Absolutely. Which I think in in getting at what you were saying, Kateri, about um, like the actors and family and, you know, I think it's their experiences, their unique experiences um, physically and otherwise that kind of give them a different groundedness that sometimes people of their age, I mean, we've had, you know, a 20 year old to have had 70 surgeries in their lives, you know, mm-hmm. um, that gives a different level of experience at that age where some of those, the peers may still be working on trying to fit in rather than to embody themselves. Um, and, and I was going to say something about like what you mentioned also about the vessel. Um, one of the things I learned during my training I think I, again, I would often feel like I needed to push it, and I really discovered it more in terms of voice, uh, where at one point one of my professors said, you know, it's not about how loud you are. Like, think of it as volume, volume as, like, the the ty- kind of, was it physics volume <laughs> of, like, how much are you filling up? Like, mm. are you, you know, you don't have to, can you hear the resonance bouncing around the room and thinking of filling the room in that way as opposed to I'm going to, force my voice to the back of the room as you know and i try to think about that in um in physical in physical embodiment as well is like are you filling this character to the to the little even if you're not even moving is every every you know little atom in your body pulsing with this character and feeling it to the utmost extent even if you're not doing crazy acrobatics yeah. uh you could or, be in stillness you know, exactly yeah. exactly yeah what is what is a particular shape in that moment that continues to tell the story right makes me think of the vocal viewpoints with like uh, architecture as a vocal viewpoint in which is a little, maybe a little bit different from mm-hmm. what you're talking about but in terms of where voice is landing mm-hmm. in the room you could argue has a physical presence in the sense that you are in your voice is in physical relationship to the room yes definitely can you tell us a little bit about your work with uh, the Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Institute at TCG? I, I saw that in your bio. Yeah. Um, so I was brought on uh, to work with a great team of facilitators who are working with um, 
theater companies all over the country who are starting to do this, what we call EDI work. Now a J is getting added to it sometimes for justice. And so then it turns into Jedi, which I think is really (laughs) doing the Jedi work. Um, And uh, somebody at one of a conference I recently went to was like the first person to get a cease and desist letter from, you know, the Star Wars Corporation for doing Jedi work, you win. Um, But uh, so, you know, really it's about, it's about advancing different ideas of like what is equity and diversity and inclusion and justice. And um, I think a lot of the, not a lot, some of the work historically has been focused more on gender identity and race identity, which is necessary and important and um, needs to happen. I think the next piece of it is including disability in the discussion. And, you know, there's a weird, there's a weird um, separation where I think some people, even in the theater community, in this very like open, welcoming, creative, artistic space, um, still have an idea that people with disabilities can't do the job. So they're almost not even worth bringing into the conversation around equity, diversity, and inclusion um, because they're a whole different ball game. It's like, well, but they don't really count, that kind of thing, mm-hmm. um, which I don't believe is true. And I think <laughs> we need to be aware of um, bringing disability into the into the conversation. Do, um, do you think, do you mind if I interject? No, no, do no, you sure. think part of it, and this is me channeling my sister Tallery, who does a lot of this work <laughs> as well. Do you think part of it is also a fear that this, that as a director, as a theater company, they won't be able to rise to meet the accommodations? Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Like I, like, sure, maybe you could do it if we, you know, were able to, remodel our building or maybe you could do it if we had, you know, um, ASL translators on, you know, at all of rehearsals, but we can't afford that or we don't have the resources to find that. So they're just intimidated by all of those things they would have to do. Yeah. There's a lot of fear. There's fear of, of, oh, well, we're not going to have the right. I wasn't trying to give them an out. I just was trying to look at the other side of what would make people reluctant. It's absolutely true. It's fear of not thinking you have the facilities or the resources. It's fear of saying or doing the wrong thing. Um, It's fear apprehension of just literally not knowing what a person's disability is or like, oh my God, are they going to have major problems during rehearsal, you know, and not understanding and then not willing, be willing, being, you know, open to having the conversation about it. So there, there are all sorts of different reasons that are very valid um, and then not so valid <laughs> because ultimately it's just about like, just do it, yeah. you know, start. And, and I get there are also challenges. You know, I knew about a small theater company up in Montana that was looking to hire um, a deaf actor for a production and wanted to have ASL interpretation. And it was it's just, you know, it's challenging being in a very rural space where you don't have as many of those resources, but they wanted to do it the right way. So I get there are lots of different challenges. And, you know, the biggest thing is just starting to take the steps, like starting to say, you know what, when we put out a casting breakdown, we're going to say, yeah, people of uh, people of all different gender identities, people of color and people with disabilities encouraged to submit, you know, just so that you're even start thinking about that. Um, and then, you know, uh, one of the things that I love about family, and it's not that anyone else's model of doing it is is less than, but that you know, in our in families' productions, people with disabilities play roles that are not meant for disability or not written for disability, um, or to be played by somebody with disability. I think it needs to happen in both ways. That you know, you want people with disabilities 
authentically representing, you know, somebody who's deaf should be playing the actor in tribes who's deaf. Um, but it's also about thinking of like, well, yeah, maybe a Margaret could be using a wheelchair or, you know, maybe a Richard the third could, but well, I guess that, that's a bad example. <laughs> right. uh, but, right. No, maybe an Iago yeah. um, has a disability. I mean, so, um, you know, it's, it's expanding in the same way that I think we're starting to do as a theater company around gender and race, expanding and saying, you know what, it doesn't have to explicitly be in the casting breakdown in order to consider an actor with a disability. Are there other companies you could point to and say they're headed in the right direction? I was just at Oregon Shakes for the first time, and I was impressed, is that the right verb, by the diversity in many yeah. ways that I saw yeah. on stage. You know, there are. There are a number of, of companies that are dabbling in it. Um, or OSF has definitely been more of a leader. Um, and then, you know, I've, I've found even locally, um, I get uh, requests more and more to submit and um, you know, so it's it's happening, but it's not it's not necessarily being built in the into the fabric of the philosophy of the organization. And I think that's where OSF has succeeded. Um, and unless you're a it's specific to your mission, like a family, um, sometimes it's people feel like it's challenging to bring that element in. I don't really think it's that challenging. One of family's <laughs> founders said, like, why is it that we can get, you know, gigantic elephants on stage and Lion King, you know, but we can't get a wheelchair on stage? Like, what is that about? Um, it's not so that hard. Ulti- exactly. And that's what our director of production, Paul Bearhorst, often says, is like, it, this is not hard. There are hard things in the world. Putting an actor with a disability into a play is yeah. not hard. No. Um, so well, and I think yeah. people get people are anxious for change, of course. And I think like this is going back to my the blunder I was making about these other professors is I think sometimes people get so <laughs> stuck and so habitual and even more, I think sometimes people have this delusion that like they're currently operating completely at capacity. Like we're, but we're so building right. our production schedule is so tight anyway, right. but we can, you know, we, we can't even get through tech rehearsals as it is, you know, we can't do it if we need to take more breaks or whatever that like belief is. And it's kind of like, we all have way more capacity to accommodate than we, than we think we do. So yeah. you, you, just, you just have to do it. Yeah. Right. Like no one has ever been like, Oh, and we had to cancel the whole production. Right. right. Like it happens somehow. Sometimes it's easier than others, but you just make it work. And the second time you do it is easier than the first. And I think one of the greatest fallacies about individuals living with disabilities is that they don't like they're not going to be adaptive when really, I mean, they're the most adaptive of all, By you know, definition. exactly. In fact, like I've started to sometimes use, um, you know, people living with adaptive abilities rather than disabilities, because that's totally. really what disability becomes. It's a skill of adaptation yes. that you employ, whether it's in theater or elsewhere. So, you know, there are people with disabilities are used to adaptation. They're going to be able to work with you. It's more so the theater, you know, structure that is not as adaptive. <laughs> Uh, so ultimately what I like to bring it back to, which is perfect for this topic and conversation, mm-hmm. is just that, you know, we're a we're a world that is filled with people of all different bodies and all different um, you know, races, genders, abilities. Brains. And uh, yeah, exactly. And to not if you are actually trying to represent humanity on your stages, and there are very few theaters that I think say, no, we're only trying to represent <laughs> one aspect of humanity. Like most <laughs> most theaters are trying to tell stories of all different kinds. And so if you're not bringing that population that, you know, right now amounts to one in five or, you know, 
know, 20% of the, the population of the United States, if you're not bringing the disability community in, then you're just doing yourselves a disservice. You're doing the art a disservice and it's going to be more interesting yeah. when you see those bodies that are up on stage and they're diverse and they're complex and, you know, things going on inwardly and outwardly. Um, it's just going to make the work more interesting. Could you uh, list the variety of um, adaptive abilities the family <laughs> actors have? Because uh, my naive brain thinks, oh, there's a there's a finite list of physical disabilities. <laughs> and then, you know, I see a, a family show and someone doesn't appear right. to be differently abled. Yes. And yet here they are in a family show. So so could you... Yeah. And, and so family, uh, you know, the, the way we define ourselves is that we're open to anyone who under the Americans with Disabilities Act, you know, identifies as having a disability. So that includes physical, cognitive, intellectual, emotional, um, neurodiverse now. Um, so yeah, I mean, that, that means everything from spinal cord injury, Parkinson's disease, cerebral palsy, low vision, no vision, hearing loss, deaf actors, um, people with anxiety, depression, sensory processing disorder, um, traumatic brain injury, I mean, uh, bipolar disorder. I mean, like, yeah, I, if you go through our program, we, we encourage our actors to, to self-identify, um, for the purpose of empowerment and empowering people in the audience to also be willing to self-identify. And, you know, typically if we have 30 actors in a production, you're going to find, you know, 25 to 30 different situations that are going on with those actors. Um, so it is a long, a long list. Um, and you know, it's one of the challenges that I'll say family started as a physically, the physically handicapped amateur musical actors leave. So it's largely physical and visible disabilities. And there was even a shift that occurred in our own company of awareness around, Oh, somebody who experiences, you know, really difficult depression and anxiety and therefore could not do the work at another company because they would not get the kind of accommodation that they need. Um, um, they deserve a place in our company, in our in our shows. Anything else you want to say before we finish mm, up? I don't think so. I've talked a lot. I love <laughs> thanks it. For, we really thanks appreciate for the space. It. Yeah, it's been a it's great been really interview. Great. All right, thank you, thank you again. <laughs> Bye. Bye. And that's our episode. Thanks so much for listening. If you liked what you heard, please spread the word. As always, we have resources up on our website, www.theactorsmind.com. If you are like, what was the book? What was the article? That's where you can go and get a reference. We also uh, do a, just a little bit of social media-ing. So if you want to follow us, we're at Actors Mind Pod on Facebook and Twitter and the Instagram. Bye. Bye. <laughs>